listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board. On this episode, hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson are joined by veteran IMB missionary, leader, and current interim president for the International Mission Board, Dr. Clyde Metter. Listen in as they discuss both Dr. Metter's years of service in Indonesia and the impact of gospel mission among Indonesian peoples. This is Missions History Podcast. MHP is a ministry of the International Mission Board, and today we have a very special guest with us, and I'm going to ask my co-host, Scott Peterson, to introduce our guest. Uh, But first, my name is David Brady, and as I said, my co-host is Scott Peterson. So, Scott, would you tell us about our guest today? Sure. Thanks, David. Uh, Our guest is someone I've known for a few years, but his time and experience at the International Mission Board goes uh, back much further. Clyde and Elaine Metter were appointed in 1974 and served in Indonesia. Clyde also has uh, many years experience here at our home office, and I think his total service is about 42 years currently. Is that right, Clyde? That's right. By subtracting uh 20 months when I was retired and then failed retirement and came back uh, at the beginning of this year and presume, presumably we'll be here for a little while longer. Well, we're glad you're back, actually, and that that retirement didn't last too long this time. And today, as we begin, um, I'm going to ask Clyde just to introduce himself a little bit, tell us about his background. Um, but one thing I wanted to say, Clyde, actually... Um, the first time I ever saw you, I didn't actually meet you, um, I think was when you were the interim president of the International Mission Board, and you preached a, uh, it might have still been called a commissioning service, I'm not sure what it was back then, but it was um, at Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. Right. And you preached on Jeremiah chapter 1. And it stirred my soul to look at those people standing in front of us in a new way, not just to see uh, their commitment and their desire, but the plan that God had for them um, from before their birth. And it just, um, it, it, I guess that sermon caused me to really um, just to worship God for those people standing there. So even though you didn't know that I was sitting out in the audience, it was, it was very a meaningful evening for me. Thank you, David. That was a, it was a special privilege during the time while I was interim president for about eight months, several years ago, to have the opportunity uh, just a couple of times to preach what we called at that time an appointment service, appointment actually, service, right. sending new f- long-term personnel. Yes. Well, Clyde, so tell us just a little bit about your background, where you're from, and your conversion, and those sorts of things. Well, I was born in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Um but we left Arkansas when I was eight years old and moved to New Mexico, which is what I call home. I really called Albuquerque, New Mexico home. Um, but actually, when I was a child, we moved around quite a bit. My father and his work was frequently transferred. But my parents were very active Southern Baptists. And uh, so I grew up in the church just about any time the church doors were opened. Came to know the Lord as a child, about eight years old. Uh, at First Baptist Church in Hobbs, New Mexico, mm. and uh, also got involved in missions organizations um, in 
Royal Ambassadors, RAs, mm -hmm. right. and uh, grew up learning about missions both in the Bible and as it was carried out around the world by Southern Baptists. Um, so I had a, an early interest in missions. Um, my wife and I married quite early. I was 19. She was 17. Wow. So we have been married <laughs> 54 years now. Wow, that's amazing. But um, I started off actually after, after we married, I uh, got involved in IT. And we're talking about 1964 when okay. I got involved in IT. The early history. Which was uh, very early. Um, ended up, we were living in Denver, Colorado in 1969. I was a systems engineer for IBM at okay. that time. And uh, on a business trip to New York City to attend a committee meeting, um, there was a terrible snowstorm. And of the 20 members from all over the country on that committee, only three of us made it to the city. So the, the committee meeting was canceled. I ended up spending, I couldn't fly out, no, no planes were flying. So I spent the day in my hotel room in the Word and on my knees. Hmm. And the Lord said, you think you're God's gift to computing, but I have a different plan for your life. Wow. Wow. And uh, I interpreted that at that time as a call to preach, to pastor. Uh, so a few months later, went back to school. Uh, while I was in seminary, I began pastoring. Um, Where'd you go to seminary? I went to seminary at Midwestern Seminary. Okay, yeah. Um, nowadays, I'm on the board at Midwestern, okay. and it's a very, very different school okay. from what it was right. uh, nearly 50 years ago when, when I went there. But anyway, pastored uh, a fine church uh, in Weston, Missouri, but while I was in seminary and pastoring, the Lord just really laid missions on our heart. Mm. And I came home from a seminary class one day and said to Elaine, I feel like the Lord is calling us to international missions. Mm. And she said, I agree. Mm. And uh, so from that point, we went, we, we began to investigate with the board very quickly. We became a uh, just convinced that Indonesia was the place the Lord was calling mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. It was a time when a lot had happened in Indonesia a few years earlier in a tremendous revival of maybe two million people coming to Christ in mm -hmm. a short period of time. And and we were enthralled by that as we saw the job description for what was called a field evangelist, what we would today call a church planter mm -hmm. in Indonesia. We knew this is this is just right for us. And uh, so we went through the process. As Scott mentioned earlier, we were appointed in October of 1974, actually landed in Indonesia on May 23rd, 1975. Wow. So we served there for almost 14 years in various capacities in church planting mm -hmm. and then in uh, teaching at the seminary campus and then teaching extension seminary and then what was called mission administrator leading the work of our mission till we were kicked out uh, in January of 1989. Okay. And uh, went to serve in other capacities and leadership roles around Asia until we came to the home office in 2001. Okay. So let me ask you this. So when, for a lot of people, I mean, you know, Indonesia is sort of vague in their minds, 
So if you just kind of give us an introduction so that we sure. know, you know, the listeners of the podcast can kind of get a feel for what you would and Elaine would have been learning when you were uh, in 1974 preparing to go. Well, one thing that really surprises people about Indonesia, I think, is the fact that it, by population, is the fourth largest country in the world. Hmm. Today, about 260 million people in wow. population. Um, so it follows China, India, the United States, and number four is Indonesia. Of course, it's a string of many, many islands, more than 17,000 islands. More than 8,000 of them have a name, and uh, about 800 of them are permanently occupied by somebody or other. If you look if you look at how far does Indonesia spread geographically, it's about the same distance as from Seattle to Miami. So wow. you, if you lay Indonesia on the continental United States, That's the length is about the same. Hmm. Um, it's tropical. Uh, a small part of a small percentage of Indonesia is north of the equator. The greater percentage is south of the equator. Hmm. So it's it's definitely tropical. The western part of Indonesia has a lot of rain. When we lived in one city in Indonesia, Medan, in North Sumatra, we always said we had two seasons, rainy and very rainy. <laughs> and, and that works for a good bit of Indonesia. As you go further east in Indonesia, it, it gets drier. So there are, are a lot of islands in the eastern part of the country that are really very arid. Like, give me, an, what's the name of an island in the eastern part that somebody might have heard of? Timor. Timor, okay. Uh, Timor, of course, one half of Timor is, uh, is independent. One half belongs to Indonesia. Okay. Um, but to show you how dry it was, when we would visit our personnel in Timor, they would ask us to bring a big box of vegetables. Wow. And uh, the first time we did that, hmm. we went to the airport feeling this is really weird to be carrying this large box of vegetables yeah. to put on the plane until as we checked in, everybody checking in was doing the same thing. <laughs> they had vegetables. So it was sort of a vegetable run every time a plane went, went to Timor. Um, so that's a typical island that's really, really dry. Indonesia is made up of many tribes and many languages. Okay. It is somewhat unified by the national language of Indonesian. Or it's interesting to me that a lot of non-Indonesians today call the language Bahasa, but Bahasa means language. So okay. I call it Indonesian, <laughs> or I guess you can call it Bahasa Indonesia. But um, the largest tribe... Um, is the Javanese tribe. Okay. And the second largest is Sundanese. Both of those, the, their homeland is on the island of Java. And 58% of the 260 million people in Indonesia live on Java. Mm. Uh, another, the second largest island by population is uh, the island of Sumatra. Geographically, actually, it's larger than Java. But uh, about 20% of the population lives on Sumatra. And that's where you started, was on Sumatra? After language study. After we language did study. language study on Java in a city called Bandung, Bandung. Uh -huh. which is one of the largest cities in the country, and then moved to Maidan um, and served there our first term doing church planting. Mm. 
and uh, then moved to Samarang for our second term teaching at the uh, at the seminary campus, mm-hmm. our only seminary campus at that time. There are several small campuses, or campi, is that the word? Anyway, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> around, uh, around Indonesia. Samarang is in central Java, and it was a seminary that was established during our early work uh, in Indonesia and continues till today. Clyde, you mentioned earlier about the Indonesian revival that had happened before you arrived in country. I'd, I'm just curious, is how, how did you hear about that revival back here in the States? What brought that to your attention? Well, there were, there were books being, uh, well, there were books that referred to it. The only, the best book written about it was written several years later by Avery Willis, a book called Why Two Million Came to Christ. But, uh, Various mission books you would pick up that were really new at that point in time would talk about the revival and talk about what happened. Could you give us some background on the revival? Yeah, to do that, I really need to go a little bit of the history of the country of Indonesia. I won't go way back, but Indonesia declared its its independence on August 17, 1945, but it didn't really achieve independence from uh, the Dutch, from the Netherlands, until 1949. But in 1949, it achieved its independence, and it was trying to figure out what it was, what form of government it would have, and all that kind of thing. That continued until the late 50s when they settled on what was to be a democracy, but it was a very controlled democracy at that time. At the same time, a communist party was growing in Indonesia. It had the second largest communist party outside of China Um, and and realized that that communist party membership in any country is a small percentage of the total population. Mm -hmm. In Indonesia, I'd say the population of Indonesia at that point uh, of 1965, when the main events happened, was probably a little over 100 million. I'm not certain, mm-hmm. but probably about that. There were 3 million members of the Communist Party at that time. Mm-hmm. And on September 30th, 1965, the Communists attempted a coup. They killed several of the main generals, but failed in killing two of them. One totally escaped. One was wounded, not badly. Uh, and the, uh, the existing government with the military was able to maintain control and put down the communists. There came a time of great instability through the remainder of 1965, all of 1966 and into 1967, just much instability. Many, many people were killed during that time. Um, the, the killing was usually with the excuse of this person might be a communist, so I'm going to kill him. But it was, you know, if you don't like your neighbor, you call him a communist and you kill him. So a lot of mm-hmm. people were, were killed during that time, and, and it was just a time of great instability. At that time, many, many people in searching for something, Mm. for some hope, for something, Mm -hmm. came to Christ. And uh, the estimate is that about two million people joined churches during that time. 
how many of them came to a real relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. We don't know, but a lot of them did. Yeah. I've done some reading recently about the during the time of the Japanese occupation of those islands and the missionaries from other denominations who were there and some of which were killed in internment camps. Um, but I've not read about any Southern Baptist missionaries there during that time. Can you tell us about Southern Baptist involvement in the islands? Right. Our Southern Baptist work did not start in Indonesia until late 1951. Uh, Actually, it started with the work of our Southern Baptist missionaries who had had to leave China. The first 10 of our missionaries who served in Indonesia came from China, and actually 14 of the first 15 came from China were old China hands. An interesting thing about that is they first thought we're going to work in Chinese with Chinese. About 3% or so of the Indonesian population then and now is ethnic Chinese. And um, at that time, a good many of them still spoke Mandarin. So our missionaries thought that's where we're going to work. But they learned very quickly if they're going to be in Indonesia, they really needed to learn Indonesian and begin to work in Indonesian and seek to reach others besides ethnic Chinese people. So our work began actually with our first three missionaries landing in Jakarta on Christmas Day, 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first churches began in the large cities uh, of Java, like Bandung and Jakarta and Surabaya and Samarang. The uh, We chose Java as the place to work because that's where most of the people lived. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, 60% of the population of Indonesia lives on Java today. It was probably a higher percentage then. Um, That was certainly the place to go. This is where unreached tribes were. Interestingly enough, further east in the country, many of the islands had been evangelized um, by earlier missionaries, um, small islands, small populations, but they had been evangelized by other missionaries. For instance, we mentioned the island of Timor earlier. Right. It was largely evangelized, if we want to call it evangelized, by Catholic missionaries. Right. Of the 10% or so of Indonesia, at least 10% of Indonesia today would be Christian, but probably close to 4% would be Catholic. So that leaves 6% that are evangelical. Likely the percentages are higher, but the government tries to keep those percentages down in its reporting. So Clyde, the one thing we didn't talk about in Indonesia is just what is the main religion? Yeah, and uh, that's so very important. The main religion of Indonesia is Islam. Um, As a rule, it is a relatively... um, what do I want to say? It's not a radical Islam. That's a better way to put it. It's there. There is some radical Islam in Indonesia. It has grown some in recent years, but but Islam is certainly the pervasive religion. However, a saying that's very popular is: scratch an Indonesian Muslim, you find a Hindu. Scratch that Hindu, you find an animist. So hmm. the great majority of Muslim people in Indonesia have many animistic practices that they follow. Interesting. 
And you mentioned Hindus. So there, there is a, a – Bali is, is primarily Hindu? Yes. The one island of Bali is Hindu, but yet the Hindu epics, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata – are very popular throughout Indonesia, throughout the island of Java. Anytime there is a big celebration of some kind, there is likely to be an all-night celebration presenting the traditional tales of India, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana. People love watching these plays presented. Most often it's done with puppet characters, and those puppeteers become... uh, very popular people and very influential people. Mm. There is, of course, um, as I said, about 10% nowadays uh, population is, is Christian. Actually, there is a legal requirement in Indonesia that everyone be a member of a recognized religion. Mm. So everyone must be either Catholic Protestant, those are two different recognized religions in the country. Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, or just recently, my understanding is they have begun to recognize a a Javanese traditional religion as an official religion. Mm -hmm. And I think Baha'i, too, was recently recognized. Okay, I didn't even know Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And so one thing for those of us who I've not had the opportunity or privilege to meet a lot of people from Indonesia. So when you and Elaine arrived, what are some of the I know people are all different, but what were some of the cultural characteristics of Indonesians that that uh, were striking to you all in your early days? Most Indonesian tribes are people who are typical Southeast Southeast Asians who are very friendly. Um, They are people who always want to make everyone happy to get along well with everyone. So they're just really as nice as they possibly can figure out how to be to, to everyone else. And, of course, we were for language study. For our first year in the country, we were on the island of Java in Bandung, and there we were among... Sundanese and Javanese primarily. When we moved to Maidan, however, Batak tribes are the major tribes around around uh, North Sumatra. There are five distinct Batak tribes. We were primarily working with one at that time unevangelized tribe, the Karabatak. But Bataks are very different people. They are more outspoken. They are more likely to tell you what they think rather than what they think you want to hear. So the the characteristics of Indonesians vary depending upon the tribe, mm-hmm. but as a rule, they are very pleasant people to be around, to interact with, and it's really a comfortable place to be. So by the time you guys arrived in 1974, uh, what were some of the ministries that were established, that Southern Baptists had established uh, in Indonesia? Well, there were, at that time, there were two hospitals, one in East Java and one in, um, on the island of Sumatra in West Sumatra province. There was the seminary that I mentioned earlier. There was a publishing house. There were four student centers seeking to reach students around the country. But of course, our major ministry, our major emphasis was evangelism and church planting. Mm-hmm. 
a few years earlier, like in 1970, we were aware our personnel, forgive the we since I wasn't there, but our personnel were aware of another group of churches that were almost Baptist, that were meeting, that were centered on the island of Sulawesi, uh, which used to be called the Celebes. And uh, some of their leadership had come to our seminary to study. And so we knew about them. But in 1974, Avery Willis went up there, spent some time, really understood their doctrine overall, and they understood what Baptists were, and they decided to change their name and call themselves Baptist. Wow. And uh, that convention, located in Sulawesi, till today has sponsored more of the non-traditional type work that we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've sponsored a lot, first on Sumatra, but then more recently in in Java. The most exciting movement that we've seen over the last dozen years in Java is has its uh, imprimatur, if you would say that, Mm -hmm. uh, its legal covering, really, from that other convention located or headquartered on Sulawesi. So, and also you've mentioned then sort of a change in terms of church planting and, and not having the, uh, to have the, the, the physical structure, but what about some changes in theological education? Well, theological education, one decision that I forgot to mention that was made in 1971 was to close the seminary campus. Um, I don't know that I understand the reasons for that, but that was a decision that was made. And instead to move to theological education by extension exclusively. Mm -hmm. Um, And moving to theological education by extension was was an excellent move. Um, By the time I went to the seminary campus, which was January of 1979, when we came back from our first furlough and moved to Samarang, and I began to teach at the seminary campus, we were reopening the seminary campus. Actually, I arrived when we reopened it. But our theological education by extension was already well established, and Mm -hmm. this was training people while they serve. Right. And uh, um, it it was an excellent program. We developed a curriculum of something like 50 or 60 books, all program textbooks, all written at either two or three levels Mm -hmm. to be studied depending on the educational level of the pastors and others who were who were studying. It, it was an excellent program because of some government intervention and other things like that. It's not being used today like it was for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a great way to get theological education on an appropriate level to people. I, I think of one pastor, a pastor by the name of Sanazma, who was leading a church in in an area where we were serving and Sanasma could not read when the theological education program started he decided he must learn to read so he could study those books wow and of course he studied on the lowest level but he studied he became an effective pastor whose church started other churches mm-hmm. um so I, I was wondering if you were uh, if this was one of the things that when you went to the seminary 
that you kind of saw that though theological education by extension is was gr- great, there was also a need for a physical presence. Right. We felt it important to uh, to be developing leaders who had a, a an opportunity to get their theological education more quickly possibly to get it at a higher level or more diversified level mm-hmm. and uh, who would become leaders of the convention, which has happened, who would become uh, also eventually some of them professors in the seminary and things like that. Mm. Clyde, one question that comes to mind when you mentioned the decision to move to theological education by extension and close the seminaries and then to come back into start opening seminaries again, I think a lot of people wonder, what's the decision-making process like? Is that a missionary decision? Is that a national decision? Or is it some combination of the two? Yeah, that's a good question. Frankly, back in those days, it was a missionary decision. It was groups of missionaries deciding together, frankly. Um, as time has moved on, there's more involvement of nationals in decisions like that. Certainly in the decision to make the primary campus in Samarang a really more higher level education with a government uh, stamp, a higher level government stamp of approval on it, that was really a national decision. Opening some other campuses around Java is more of a national decision, hmm. whereas missionaries may have stayed more on just the TEE approach. But it's all a cooperative thing working together. Um, even though the the an initial Union of Indonesian Baptist Churches, which really grew out of our early work, even though it has remained quite traditional, it is opening up more and more. Um, it was interesting. A, a few years ago, I was in Jakarta, and the first night I was there, I had dinner with the leadership of that convention. All but one were my former students. Interesting. You know, so so you know these people, mm-hmm. you can talk with them well, and they're very very open. Um, one, for instance, just felt a, a great. He's the guy who is the executive director of the convention feels a great kinship with us because when his wife was a teenager, my wife taught her how to play the piano and she's now the head of a music school. Wow. So, you know, there are okay. these little things that relationships mm-hmm. develop and and we're able to, uh, you know, just able, frankly, to build on those relationships. Do, do Indonesian Baptists have a, a vision or actually some structure whereby they're, they're sending missionaries beyond Indonesia? They're, they're just getting to that point. Um, when we first started talking a lot with our national conventions around Asia about sending missionaries, Indonesian Baptist Convention leadership was afraid of the the cost, frankly. That's what they were afraid of. And they had in their minds the only way this can be done is internationally. Well we were we were having a missions conference up in the mountains. Uh this must have been 
in about 1995 or 1996, I was no longer living in Indonesia, but I was an area director and had responsibility for Indonesia. And we were conducting this conference on missions, on sending missionaries, and all the leadership came, which we were really happy that they did. A lot of people came, and including all the leadership. And knowing their fear about the cost of sending internationally, I emphasized, as I presented what I presented at that, at that meeting, sending missionaries to other ethnic groups in other islands in this big country. Right. And I remember them just grab the first question when I opened it up to, to questions and whatever. The first question was, you mean we don't have to send somebody to another country to be missionary? We can send them to our other islands mm, to mm. be a mission sending group. Mm-hmm. And they were excited about that. Amazing. Yeah. And they that's where they started. They're just beginning to venture into the idea of sending them actually internationally. Mm-hmm. So, Clive, one of the things that always interests me in about missionaries and thinking about their life is not just what they do, but what God does in them. So I'd love for you if you just take a few minutes and, and talk to, to Scott and me about some of the things that the Lord has taught you uh, over these years of serving him uh, that have been just really pressed into your heart. That he is always adequate. Mm-hmm. That, uh, wow, in, in so many ways has he taught us that. Um, one of the hardest times of our lives was getting kicked out of Indonesia. And uh, actually we knew we were going to have to leave about a year before we actually had to leave. During that year, well, let me back up to say I had I had been writing a textbook on Isaiah, and uh, I had outlined the book and written maybe the first chapter, but I had I was just very very busy that last year carrying down a lot of responsibilities. So my wife Elaine finished the book. Wrote she spent that last year in Indonesia finishing writing a textbook on Isaiah. And she says today, that is how God carried her through through having to leave. Because if Isaiah teaches anything, it is that God is in control. That's right. He is the one who is in the control. He is is a uh, a protector. Mm-hmm. We uh, we had an experience one time on one of the outer islands of a group, a mob of young people who were probably drunk, who uh, began to to throw stones at us. And mm-hmm. we were in this little building and had a thin tin roof, and they were throwing stones that were five or six inches in diameter, and they were coming through the roof. And, uh, you know, we're standing there. Till we finally decided to make a run for it. But God's protection is always there. We mm. were never touched by wow. one of those stones through, through that time. God's mm. protection is there. Um, I had some, some pretty dramatic encounters, well, really just two in Indonesia with, with the spirit world, frankly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, just the absolute 
proof that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right. That Amen. God is greater than mm-hmm. than whatever Satan might try to throw at us. Mm-hmm. Um, that that God carries out work when we go ahead and leave it. When we were in Maidan, there was one place where I had tried to start a church, and a couple of things had caused it to just just fail a couple of times uh, out at one of the villages where I was working, a place called Simpang Namutating. Um, do, we don't have to say that, do we? Uh, well, you should. It would be good <laughs> for so. you. Be good. I, I was like, wait, this word's going to stop sometime <laughs> soon. All right, keep that going. That might be as bad as eating durian, but we'll go there. That's for another time. The, oh, I love durian. I love I'm a durian. durian. I'm sorry, Scott. Yeah, You've I do got a too. problem. I'm with you, Clyde. <laughs> but... Um, when we left Maidan to go on that first furlough, uh, there was still some work happening at Simpang Namutating, but it wasn't much yet. Go forward to 2008. So that's uh, 25 years later, closer to 30 years later. We are we fly into a, a city in... in uh, uh, Sumatra called Pakanbaru, and I'm taken to a home where a, a church is meeting, and uh, I preach that morning. After I preach, a, a young woman, maybe 30 years old, probably younger, comes up to me and said, I've never met you, but I know who you are. Mm. I'm from Simpang Namutating, and you started our church. Mm. That's what God does. Right. God just uh, God carries on work. God does not uh, does not let His work go void. Amen. And God Beautiful. God is uh, in His graciousness, mm-hmm. in His mercy, allows us sometimes to know what He's done mm-hmm. uh, with a little something we were able to do. But God is powerful to take our weakness mm-hmm. and turn it into something good. Mm-hmm. Um, was when when you guys had to leave Indonesia? Was there a, a period of, of just sort of discouragement and and sort of trying to figure out where do we go now, or would, was well, the next step very clear? We had a we had a new assignment, so the next step was very clear in in regard to that. Um, we began. Um, an itinerant training ministry in the Indian subcontinent with several other couples. I was leading that ministry, which we would go one place in India, Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, go one place for a week, training for a week, go another place the next week, another place the next week, another place the next week. A tremendous ministry. My wife says it's the favorite ministry she ever had. Mm. Uh, And uh, so we had an assignment. But we were grief-stricken. My wife totally fell apart immediately when right. we left Indonesia. Sure. I fell apart about six months later mm-hmm. and learned later that it's typical for men to experience a delayed grief mm-hmm. about six months later. I fell into a deep depression mm. uh, for several weeks until I realized what it was. And mm-hmm. when I realized what it was and took it to the Lord, it was over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there was healing. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, but the, the Lord opened us up to a new ministry. And our ministry, frankly, changed several times. But every time the Lord 
just had something new for us. Clyde, as you're talking about the the challenges and God working in those challenges and your experience in Indonesia, I'm reminded of something we were talking about off mic a little while back, and that was some experiences of our missionaries at the time of the coup. And just it seems like, a as is common in many places of the world, where Satan opposes what God is doing, we see events like that. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences from those earlier missionaries? Yeah, well, prior to the coup, when the communists were just certain that they were going to take over the country, they, uh, for instance, for some of our missionaries on Java, the communists uh, marked grave sites and put up grave stones with the names of our missionaries who they would kill and bury there. Our missionaries stayed faithful throughout that. They saw their own gravestones, but Mm. they stayed faithful and continued to serve. Mm. At another time, prior to the coup, uh, uh, a communist group, a mob, came to our hospital in Kadiri uh, wanting to burn the hospital. Dr. Kathleen Jones came out, and under the power of the Spirit, she just faced them down, and they left. Mm. Um, It's amazing how God protected his people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's amazing how God protects his missionaries all over the world. We have, uh, through the years in Indonesia, we lost two MKs in motorcycle accidents through the years, one in 1972 and one in 1983. Mm. But that's it. Mm. Even with all the terrible road traffic and everything else, like in any developing country, um, God has protected. Even with the crazy way some of us drive, God, (laughs) God has protected. You know, Clyde, you've mentioned a number of things, and Scott kind of mentioned this a little earlier, but to me, it's always striking how what we think is just a, a terrible political upheaval or a situation or circumstance, actually, God is using that to open a new door. And I think about the reason we went to Indonesia is because the door to China closed. Uh, the the reason people in Indonesia began to have this spiritual hunger was because of all this instability related to uh, to, to to communism, and then even some of the spiritual growth that you and Elaine experienced with your having to leave Indonesia, and so it's it's and even God opening other doors for you to serve, and you know I would just like to encourage people both in churches here and uh, missionaries around the world, you know. What may seem to you like the end is just God getting ready for a new beginning. That's exactly right. I'm, all I can say to that, David, is just echo it. Um, God is in control, mm-hmm. and however bad it looks to us, he's ready to act. Um, also, it's, uh, it's just interesting how God acts in God's time. Mm-hmm. Um, after we left the seminary campus and we uh, and we began to do teaching in seminary extension, we served for a period of time in a small city in south central Java called Purwokerto. 
Purwokerto is the capital city of an area called Banyamas. Think of a large county is probably the good way to think of it with a whole bunch of people. I think it's 8 million people who live in Banyamas in that county. We left there in September of 1986 and left behind 21 small Baptist churches around that area. That's pretty much the way it stayed for the next 20 years. I mentioned a while back the puppeteers who do the Hindu Ramayana and Mahabharata Mm -hmm. and how they become very influential. In 2006 or 2007, two of these puppeteers were won to the Lord by one of our missionaries. Amazing. Praise God. Those guys with their influence began to evangelize. Over the last 11 or 12 years now, every year, hundreds of churches have have been started and thousands of people have come to faith mm-hmm. to the point that now there are thousands of churches in Banyumas mm-hmm. and there are, who knows, certainly tens of thousands of believers mm-hmm. in Banyumas. Back when there were those 21 little churches, we thought, Was God ever going to really move here? God moves in God's time, and God builds on on what's been done. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we talk about church planting movements, but something that we sometimes forget is that before virtually any church planting movement takes off, there has been somebody who has been picking up the rocks, Mm -hmm. who has been plowing the spiritual ground, who has been watering that ground with their Mm -hmm. blood, sweat, and tears. Mm -hmm. And then in God's timing, God is the one who gives the harvest. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that kind of thing happen in several places of Indonesia. Mm. You know, and something you said earlier is just, I've seen this pattern of God over and over again. Sometimes we move very quickly for restructuring or reforming and when we do that it doesn't have it's we get the shell right but what you were talking about is prior to a, a real restructuring there's a revival and the revival is god putting life in in the soul and healing relationships and repentance and all of those things when that precedes our human efforts at restructuring then that's when you end up like a Protestant Reformation or a First Great Awakening or something like that. And that seems to be the pattern you saw in Indonesia as well. That's right. Clyde, thank you for being our guest today on Missions History Podcast. And so for Scott Peterson, I'm David Brady, and thank you for joining us on MHP. been listening to Missions History Podcast, a production of the International Mission Board. Join hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson each week as they discuss significant people, places, and events from the history of international missions. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.